Good morning, fiddle and pipe listeners. I hope y'all had a merry gigmas or are going to have a merry gigmas. Just want to come at you with some morning announcements. If y'all don't already know, you can check us out on patreon.com slash fiddle and pipe. There you can, on Patreon, you can listen to our happy hour podcast, as well as listen to outtakes from every episode. I'm about to just spam Patreon with a bunch of material. And as always, thank you to Lauren and Rainer, who are constantly supporting us. We really appreciate your support. Your support allows us to pay for better software editing, more research materials, more books, etc. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Fiddle and Pipe. You can follow me at BM Ross, at BM Ross Music and Catherine at Cat Flinch Flute. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, so that way we can reach more listeners. Leave us a nice review, and we will read it on air. If Instagram isn't really your jam, you can follow us on Facebook. This will be our last episode of 2021. We are taking next week and the week after off. We will come back the first week of January, because honestly, we need a break. We've been working nonstop since... April. And we love y'all, but quoting Catherine here, we love ourselves more. So without further ado, here is the episode. Hi, I'm Brittany Ross and I play the fiddle. I'm Catherine Blinchen and I play the pipe. And together we are Fiddle and Pipe. Two classical musicians who are reading and discussing topics beyond the staff. So grab a book, take a seat, and tune in. I'm also recording. (coughs) You really gotta lay off those cigarettes, Catherine. What? (laughs) What? Uh, Do do all flute players not smoke cigarettes? Uh, I don't. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> That's not a healthy habit, and if you're doing that habit, you better quit that right now. Actually, speaking of quitting cigarettes, guess who has been clean of cigarettes for six weeks now? Woody! Yay! Yeah! My boyfriend's name is Woody. We've been going on for like eight and a half years now, and this is the first time I've seen him quit cold turkey like this. It's insane. It's weird because he's getting up a lot earlier in the day, and I'm like, why are you awake? (laughs) Go back to to sleep. I like having the apartment to myself in the mornings. That's why me and Lacey have morning time together, and you're just in the bed. (laughs) I sometimes get up early, and we start every day with a nice snuggle, which is great. That's sweet. I like starting the day with a lot of contact. I'm like, yes. (laughs) I am love. I can get through this day. Body heat. Keep yourself warm. Oh, it's one of the five love languages. Physical touch, words of affirmation, receiving or giving gifts, quality time, and acts of service. So there was a point in time where I remember reading about the love languages, and then I completely forgot because the only (laughs) reason why I had a crush on some guy or some guy liked me or something like that, I don't know, he suggested that book dumb 18 year old Catherine went out to Barnes and Noble bought this stupid book I didn't like it and I'm sorry if you're all about that people but it's just not my jam right now I remember reading about the five love languages and I was just like okay and then afterwards I was like this book is dumb (laughs) so I never read the book but the five love languages are truly a thing is it it's not just a book Mm -hmm. right it's like a real no it's Okay. It's like a real concept. So people have their preferred ways of giving and receiving affection. Mm-hmm. So you have physical touch, which is obvious. Quality time, which is pretty obvious. Acts of service is basically people doing things for you, like making dinner or like doing chores or stuff like that. Gifts, also pretty obvious. And then words of affirmation. It's basically oh. just like acknowledging verbally that you're like proud of someone or that you love them or like really getting the love language via words 
I am quality time. I will never get enough time out of people that I care about. True. I like that too. Speaking of love language and how I'm big oh. into quality time, I'm not getting a lot of that because this is my personal hell week. Because Gigmas, which Gigmas. if you missed out on that, listen to our last episode. Yeah, right now. But speaking of Gigmas, Gigmas sounds like Christmas, which is purposeful because it's when musicians get a lot of gigs during December. But speaking of Christmas, we thought we would... Do you like that? Do you like that transition I did there? Brittany, the queen of transitions. I'm looking for words of affirmation and you're not giving it to me. <laughs> I gave you a clap! Anybody Thank out you. there, Thank just you. applaud and root for Brittany. I am standing. I am bowing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> We thought we'd do something a little bit different today and talk to y'all about some Christmas music that we've selected. Unfortunately, yeah. we're not going to be able to play any of it for you because we don't want to get sued. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, we I don't, don't have money for that. No, we don't. But on the plus side, at least from my point of view, what I researched, I learned some juicy things that happened in the early 19th century that... Oh, shit. Hmm. I can't wait for the tea to be spilled. Ooh, tea... <laughs> Tea time with Brittany and Kat. <laughs> well, I have a LaCroix or a LaCroger. No, it's act- it's, it's a real LaCroix, actually. Not a LaCroger. I have but... an aha. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> Sparkling water oh. time with Brittany and Catherine. So how should we start this? Should we go chronologically? Like, I guess. So wait, you're doing Corelli first? Yeah, so Corelli was like, that's before Mozart's time, correct? That's a stupid question. Let's just Are keep going. Are you really asking me this? <laughs> Can you edit that out? <laughs> no, I'm going to leave that in. That is that is staying in. <laughs> you made me edit this one, so that's staying in. <laughs> oh my god, why are you knocking at my door? <laughs> Hold on just a second. There's a guy with a package, so I might need to like sign for it or something. No worries. who don't know, which I guess includes maybe some of our listeners and Catherine, Corelli was a Baroque composer, the Baroque period, which was, what, the 1600s or so? Like 1600s, and I would say maybe like, because the classical period was like 17... 1750? Yeah, 1715, like when Bach died. Or 1756, that's the year. I'm really going back into my music history vault. Same. <laughs> I literally pulled out notes from one of my music history courses. So Corelli was an Italian composer in the Baroque period. He was, sorry, I'm trying to flip between windows. I can actually probably set this up better, so I'm not flipping as much. I need a bigger monitor. Need a dual monitor. Yeah, the dual monitor. I had that when I was working at the PR office at Lamont, and it was the best thing ever. I yeah, I had that when I was working at undergraduate admissions at University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, and it was the best thing ever. And I feel like if I ever had a sex fantasy, it would involve dual monitors because (laughs) that is something that I need in my life (laughs) and I want it so bad and my life would just be so much easier (laughs) okay (laughs) so he was an Italian composer he was born in Venice and I'm kind of have an upward inflection because I looked at a few different sources and a lot of places said that he was born in some obscure small town, and some people said Venice, and some people said Florence, so hmm. it might be just that record-keeping was not that good, and we're not really sure where in Italy he was born, which I feel yeah. like is a possibility. He was born in 1678 and died in 1713. He was very big into the Concerto Grosso form, which helped develop the modern sonata and what we know is like the modern concerto mm-hmm. through form. He was also a violinist and he helped establish the instrument as basically being the bright, shiny, flashy orchestra centerpiece that you see today. And if it wasn't for him, Brittany wouldn't be playing the fiddle. 
Corelli wrote the what's known today as the Christmas Concerto, and I thought that he was the only person who wrote a Christmas Concerto. I was very wrong. Christmas Concerti apparently are very common in the Baroque period. Hmm. Bach wrote a Christmas Oratorio, J.S. Bach, and then Torelli, who I assume based on the name is another Italian composer, mm-hmm. also wrote a Christmas Concerto. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. I wonder if Vivaldi had. I mean, he wrote Winter for the Four Seasons, but... So the thing about Christmas Concerti is that they always have a pastoral movement. Oh. Pastoral movements come from the uh, Siciliano dance, which was kind of inspired by a shepherd dance from Sicily. And think, like, shepherds, shepherds in a field, shepherds going to see the birth of Jesus kind of thing. That makes sense. Yeah, so all Christmas Concerti have a pastoral movement, a very calm... Think of, like, drones and bagpipes and, like, thirds and sixths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hearing that harpsichord in the background and then just, mm-hmm. like, the bass, like, uh, When uh. you're watching your sheep, do you not hang out watching your sheep with your harpsichord? Always. Duh. <laughs> Who doesn't have a harpsichord? <laughs> you have your dog and your shepherd hook and your harpsichord. Just make sure it's in tune. <laughs> so harpsichords are kind of like pianos, but smaller and normally made of a light wood and they have a very distinctive sound oh how would you describe it it's very like i would say like dinky (laughs) dinky is that what you said i said dinky d-i-n-g-y i don't know i just think of it as like ding 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 yeah it's kind of clanky yeah, yeah. The harpsichord, I think, is a really interesting instrument. It's really distinctive. <sighs> if you don't know what harpsichord sounds like, you should go look it up. It's not as clean as a piano. I actually like the sound of a harpsichord, though. I love Baroque music. Baroque music is... It's calming, in a way. It's so calming. You know that Spotify wrapped thing? Yeah. One of my top genres was Baroque. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hell Yeah. <laughs> I get pumped on Bach every day. It's great. I mean, who doesn't? Have you heard Mm -hmm. his six sonatas and partitas for violin, especially Hilary Hahn playing them? Hearing her play Bach in person is absolutely breathtaking. I want to cry. I want to cry. So Corelli's Christmas Concerto. Apparently Christmas Concerto is just a nickname for it. It's actually called the Concerto Grosso in G minor, opus six, number eight. Which I didn't know that. I actually thought that Christmas Concerto was a name for it. That's what I thought, too. It was commissioned by... Oh, God. Cardinal... (laughs) Pietro Audubani? So this was back in the day when all you had to do if you were a composer was basically shack up with some really rich guy <laughs> and he would <laughs> and he would pay for everything for your whole life and you would never have to worry about a thing through the classical era where composers would basically literally live with some duke or prince or lord or whoever and basically just live in their basements or whatever and just spend their (laughs) lives writing music for them and they'd get paid for it and they'd have a place to stay and they have food and i miss those days yeah i can't pass that opportunity up you need to find me a lord or a prince can i just live in your basement for free and no actually you pay me to live in your basement (laughs) yeah i will write you music yeah you pay me i live in your basement which is not (laughs) creepy at all (laughs) (laughs) occasionally write music for you yeah occasionally when you want some i don't know (laughs) so wrong (laughs) yeah i don't think it's something you could really get away with doing today no not today so this cardinal basically went to corelli and was like hey you know any good concerto grosos and corelli's like yeah i can compose a whole bunch of them and the cardinal's like great here's 20 Curly's like, thanks, man. So the <laughs> composition date is unknown, but there's a record of Corelli performing a Christmas concerto in 1690 for a new patron. And this was actually not even published until after his death in 1714. Because of the really specific name, it was actually a part of his 12 concerti grossi, opus 6. So mm. this is one of 12. So this is the eighth of the set of 12. 
The name comes from the inscription, uh, it, which is Italian, so I'm sorry, I'm American. Fado porno di Nat- Natalie? Nat- Natalie? I'm sure it's horribly wrong, but the English translation is made for the night of Christmas, which is where the Christmas concerto comes from. The instrumentation of the piece is two solo violins and a solo cello, strings, rapiano strings, which is a Baroque term for basically the not solo people, and harpsichord, and technically basso continuo, which is kind of covered in the harpsichord and the cellos and bass. No flute? No flute. It's just strings and harpsichord. Sad. Probably why you didn't really know about it when we talked about it. Yeah, you mentioned it, and I was like, I've never heard of that piece before. I only know <gasps> it because we played it in high school for, like, our winter concert. Mm. Okay, that would make sense. It's a really cool piece. I like it a lot. I mean, for Baroque music. I wish we would play stuff like that when I was a band. Or, like, something cool like that. I don't know. Well, I mean, I half know. of your instruments didn't exist in the Baroque period. I know, but I wish we played something cool. Like, if we played... <sighs> played one song the christmas song chestnuts roasting on an open fire but we did it really freaking slow and i hated it mm. i hated it so much chestnuts roasting i would like to go back to i guess it's the 17th century please mm-hmm. with like a trombone in hand and be like yo check this out yeah <laughs> well i think brass did exist that time not like current brass instruments, like the trumpet, but horns of that type back. There's so many. I'm not a brass person. I'm sorry if you play brass. The structure, if you really want that kind of information, is a concerto di Chisa, which was or was a 17th century style of composition that was out of style by the mid 18th century, but it kind of led to sonata form. The special thing about this is that there were six movements instead of four. So you have a vavace in 3-4 that goes to 2-4, an allegro, an adagio that goes to allegro and then back to adagio, another vavace in 3, an allegro in cut time, and then a largo, which is the pastoral movement in 12-8. That's kind of all I have. There's not too much out there on this, which I thought there would be. I think it's just played a lot because it's labeled the Christmas concerto. Yeah, someone's like Christmas. I feel like with some composers, when you see a specific piece, it's like, oh, I think it was just made because not for any specific purpose or anything. Or maybe it was, but not anything like, like, oh, here's like a 10-page paper about it. Well, you also have to think, as we learned during our Twilight episodes, like David told us, in this time, records were not kept very well. So I think Mm -mm. there's definitely, unless you get into really, 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 sorry, scholarly books and papers and essays, which honestly, I should have done. Kind of ran out of time during Gigmas. Unless you get to super sources, I feel like you're not going to find very much out there. No. And speaking of not finding very much out there, Here is the next piece that we're, or piece of music that we're going to talk about, and that is Mozart's Move Over Leroy Anderson, because this is Mozart. Uh, There's none of that crap in Mozart's sleigh ride, so I don't know what you're doing, because we're still in the 18th century. I did not know that Mozart wrote a sleigh ride. Until yeah, you mentioned I it. <laughs> Until I mentioned it with that one freaking link. <laughs> so Mozart's sleigh ride is his three German dances, K605. So I would say this is like fairly a little bit towards like the endish part of his career when it you see the K60 or 600 numbers. Yeah, because didn't it start at K1? Well, I have a book here that is the complete works of Mozart. So yes, there is a K. 1A through F. So that means this is Mozart's 600 and something piece, (laughs) which is insane. With this book, at least, there's more because it's possible that some of the pieces that he wrote that were not specifically like Mozart wrote this, it's possible that he wrote it. It's kind of like, um, like he might have had like a pen, not a pen name, um, a ghostwriter. 
I guess or they're just like small little drafts or something. I don't know. Anyway, his three German dances, they were written, it says origin, so I don't know if this is like when he it was premiered. I would assume it would be. I guess its origin is February 12th, 1791. I guess it was premiered then. The score is for two flutes, one doubling on piccolo, which mm. I was like, I bet it was really tiny. I really want to see like an, a tiny little piccolo, but anyway. Did you know there's such thing as a piccolo violin? Is it just a baby violin? I think it's about the size of like a three-fourths violin, and it's up a fifth. So instead of having the strings G-D-A-E, it's D-A-E-B, as in boy. Dang, why would you need that? It's a Baroque thing. Oh! I kind of want it. That sounds really cool. Hmm. Podcast goals. Let's get Brittany that piccolo violin. Gimme. Gimme the instrument. So tell me more about Mozart. So the scoring was for two flutes, one dimbling piccolo, two oboes, two bassoons, two horns, two trumpets and timpani, five sleigh bells, two violins, and basso continuo. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. We have basically a full band and then two violins? <laughs> <laughs> what well, the hell is that? So I think this was just a chamber work, really. I think this was mm. probably background music because if it was premiered in Vienna at that time, I feel like it might have just been like background music for like a special event. For some Duke's holiday party that we didn't get invited to? Well, yeah. I mean, this is chamber music practically. So if you think about How it, it's many not a full orchestra. Total? I guess like two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven, eleven. 13, and then Basso continue, I guess, like, you have one person, maybe, like, 14 people? Yeah. And then maybe maybe uh, 15 I, for the sleigh bells? That's I don't know. chamber orchestra, for sure. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be necessarily big. I guess, I don't know how popular. I've never seen this in a concert before, so I don't know, like, where this would be played. I wonder if partially because the orchestration is so weird, if that would keep people from programming it. Yeah, unless people did a special Christmas event or something, Mm -hmm. and yeah. If you've seen it, just let us know. Let us know on our Facebook page, aka Fiddle and Pipe Forum. Basically, the only reason why this is called Mozart's Sleigh Ride is because of the five sleigh bells and two post horns, which I guess are a type of horn. I didn't really look that up, unfortunately. I'm sorry if you play brass. You probably hate us. (laughs) I think all of our brass fans have turned us off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably at this they're point like, they're like nope nah they don't know what they're talking about <laughs> nah dude let's listen to some brass players the trio of this piece is entitled die schlittenfert i want to say better than my italian <laughs> i probably butchered that german but in translation that is called the sleigh ride basically the sleigh bells and the horns basically kind of reflected the sounds of what people in the court used to do all the time during the winter, like, go on sleigh rides. Because what else are you doing in the 18th century? You're not watching TV. You might be reading a book if you're educated. (laughs) That was a popular pastime, so that's why those things were inserted in there. But anyway, the Sleigh Bell Trio is based on an Austrian folk tune. The delightful coda combines all the tunes and instruments of the third German dance. So the three dances are in the key of D, G, and C, If y'all haven't guessed it, that's basically the circle of fifths because I teach this to all my freaking students. (laughs) (laughs) Know your circle of fifths. Y'all are getting a free theory lesson right now. (laughs) So here's a little description from this book that I'm reading that I got this information from. While the two minuets have the mellow coloring of clarinets, rich harmonies, and flat keys, the simpler, rustic German dances are suitably brighter with the occasional harsh chromaticism, as in the trio of dance number two. That's like a musical description if that's what you want. But the only reason why it's called Mozart's Sleigh Ride is because he added sleigh bells into it, and that's literally just it. (laughs) So. So there's nothing Christmassy about it. He's just like, you know what? Sleigh bells. When I was listening to it on Spotify last night, it was just like, chink, 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 chink. It sounded really harsh and really tinny. Hmm. And I was like, ugh. <laughs> Did not sound great. Maybe that's why it's not programmed. I don't know. I would be shocked to see if someone actually like put it in a program for a Christmas concert. It would be something different. 
It would definitely catch your audience's attention. Yes. After Mozart's sleigh ride, we just, you know, hop on into the 19th century, a.k.a. 1813, and we meet the composer, William Henry Fry. You want some fries with that shake? Mm. Actually, fries and shakes together are actually really good. I'm really hungry now. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Brittany. Anyway, speaking Mm -hmm. of fries... And composing. So William Henry Fry, he's an American composer, born in 1813, mm. and he he basically was from and lived in Philadelphia for his entire life, I guess. Actually, fun fact. So I read this from a book that I got at Second and Charles called America's Music by hmm. Gilbert Chase. <laughs> he has some fun facts about William Henry Fry. Apparently his grandfather was an officer in the Revolutionary War. And he was a singer. So that's probably where William Henry Fry kind of got his music influence from. But he wasn't Mm -hmm. a musician. He was a journalist. And what he did is he actually covered musical events from period of 1836 to 1841. So I guess he was like considered a music critic of that time. He was a journalist. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to advocate American music. Like he wanted America to like, you know, appreciate american music because around this time it's post-revolutionary war this is when america is we're just you know we're growing into Mm -hmm. a country that is Mm -hmm. larger than it was back in the early 19th century this was a time where a lot of people were trying to discover like what is an authentic american culture what's american is this around the time that dvorak came to the u.s to write new world no this would be later because Dvorak didn't really come in until, like, the late half of the 19th century, I think. Mm-hmm. Mid, night, late. This is, like, early 19th century. Early to mid. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. The War of 1812, I think, probably just happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. Because America, it's 1813. Yeah. So, America yeah. is just, like, you know, we're trying to find our own culture here. We find it. Mm-hmm. Some of it's okay. <laughs> 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 anyway, he was trying to advocate for American music. So he attended all these music events and he wrote about them. One person that he was inspired by was a musician, band leader, and composer, Francis Johnson, who was before his time. I think around, if I'm correct with my notes, Fry was exposed to Francis Johnson's music toward the end of Francis's life. So, okay. but... Francis Johnson, a quick little backstory about him. He was also a notable figure in Philadelphia as a musician and band leader. Mm-hmm. He actually, I mean, he did a lot of firsts. I read a lot of cool things about this guy. He was probably one of the first musicians to have a touring band. Hmm. He did a UK or a Britain tour with a few musicians that, like a jazz combo or ensemble. So it was like him and a few other musicians and they rotated between strings and winds and singing and Mm -hmm. they sang in courts and stuff like that. It was a big hit, very successful. And Mm -hmm. he was the first black musician to publish sheet music. And he was Mm -hmm. basically like the first formal black musician, very successful career. He freaking grinded. (laughs) That's all I can think about. Like, he did the grind. Some of his compositions possibly inspired the ragtime jazz movement later down the road into the next Mm -hmm. decade. He was just a successful guy. I guess after he did his tour in Britain, I read something where he was inspired by the music of Johann Strauss or just waltzes in general. Like, he heard a lot of waltzes. And so Mm -hmm. he basically was inspired by it to where they created the first holiday promenade in Philadelphia back in 1838. After that, it's just become a thing. Every year they have in Philadelphia, there's this holiday promenade dance or whatever it is, and it's still going on today, which is really cool. That is really cool. So when I was reading this book by Gilbert Chase, I was reading about William Fry's Santa Claus Symphony, And it mentioned Francis Johnson, and it said that basically there's some controversy because it's possible that William Fry kind of took some of the ideas and melodies from Francis Johnson's music and 
put it in the Santa Claus Symphony. Hmm. And the reason being is because when I read a little bit more into it, Francis Johnson, during this promenade, and I'm assuming it's the promenade, it just makes sense because it was a holiday thing. And here's the programming that it was. So this was in January 1839 when Fry went to this event and he was writing about it. So the program Francis Johnson had put on was part one, sleigh waltzes. So you have an introduction as number one. Number two is the bell solo. Number three is the blacksmith making nails to shoe his horses. Number four, clock striking 12 and watchman springing his rattle. Number five, sleighing party in an uproar. The horses supposed to be running away with cracking of whips, jingling of bells, sound of post horns, all that stuff. The second half was it was more associated with something that Francis Johnson was a part of at the time. But mm-hmm. that program at the very beginning, that part one, if you listen to the Santa Claus Symphony, it's very similar to what that programming was. So the Santa Claus Symphony was actually not premiered until almost 15, 20 years after Fry went to this event in 1839. It was premiered on Christmas Eve of 1853. Mm -hmm. And the piece is actually, it's really neat. It's basically a symphonic poem, and it's a mix between secular Christmas melodies that we're all used to and themes and sacred hymns, tunes, that it's just a mix of all that. And Mm -hmm. when you hear it, the beginning is supposed to portray the birth of Christ. It's very majestic, I would say. You hear a lot of trumpets in the opening. It's bright, celebratory. There's an awesome clarinet solo. (laughs) It kind of reminds me of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, the opening for that. Mm -hmm. And it's just very virtuosic. There's a beautiful dance. So it goes into this like holiday Christmas Eve setting of a dance happening so you hear this waltz happening there's the clarinets doing something cool the solo and then the flute comes in with an awesome solo that i'm like that's a lot of notes Mm -hmm. and then the clarinet goes back into its solo again it's just it's just a celebratory dance and then it kind of goes over to where you know the party is dying down and people are going to sleep and so you hear in the strings a melody called the Lord's Prayer. I guess that was a common tune back in that time of the mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. When I was listening to it, I couldn't really define it. Oh, like, yeah, this is the Lord's Prayer. I just read that, like, there's, like, a melody called the Lord's Prayer that the strings are playing in the background. So Mm -hmm. if you know about it and you're a music history nerd, just let us know. On top of that is a saxophone, basically doing, like, a rockabye baby kind of tune, which... It's 1853, and a decade before is when Adolf Sachs created the saxophone, Hmm. which I'll get to in a minute. (laughs) And then it goes into, like, a storm. It's, like, a snowstorm, and it's very, like, it it just sounds really cool. It sounds like a storm. Towards the end, you start hearing, like, oh, come all ye faithful. You start hearing the, you know, normal church hymns that you are used to. Oops. But before that, I actually kind of skipped ahead. So you hear the snowstorm. Oh, my gosh. And then you hear... Then you hear the arrival of Santa Claus. Hmm. And it's so cute because you hear these little jingle bells and it's a bassoon song. That's cute. It's the most adorable thing ever. And then you hear Oh Come All You Faithful because it's like super majestic and stuff at the end. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so compared to that programming of Francis Johnson's, that concert that happened in 1839, Mm. I can see how Gilbert Chase... Could be like, yeah, I think he totally stole things off of Francis Johnson's music. And unfortunately, I try to find Francis Johnson's music, could not find anything. I did find like some biographical information, but no music, no recordings. And it's kind of sad because hmm. he was a successful musician of his time, and yet he is not recognized. Most likely because he's black. Just gonna say it. I think you found project for you i know right and i never heard of him and it's insane you would think that this piece called santa claus symphony would make good reviews and the audiences loved it the critics though (laughs) did not like it because basically the critics kind of thought it was a children's piece not a serious classical work oh yeah it's called the santa claus symphony (laughs) (laughs) it's not called christmas concerto number one opus 17 
Yeah, no, it's like, I think this might have been like his first piece that he wrote too. I'm not holding on to that thought, but that's the first piece that comes about in this section after reading his early life. And like, that's it. So I'm Mm -hmm. assuming the Santa Claus Symphony was his first piece that he wrote. And so a lot of people just didn't take it seriously. And he wanted to take it seriously because he's like, oh, well, symphonies are more than just being a fourth movement work. Symphonies can be continuous because, again, this piece is a continuous 26-ish minute piece. There's a lot of themes in there that you can recognize. Even if it's not a particular song, you can tell, like, this is the rival of Santa Claus. This is a snowstorm. All that junk. Mm -hmm. So... One critic, Richard Storrs Willis, he and Fry had a really nice public argument over the paper. <laughs> so they would write about each other. <laughs> and then it would publish in the next day's paper? Basically. Basically, it was just a back and forth feud. So it's like Twitter, but for the 1800s. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Fry was just, you know, trying to be all about, like, we need to support American music There is a really interesting quote that I found in an article that I, or not an article, somebody wrote a 10-page paper about the Santa Claus Symphony, Hmm. which is insane. One of the quotes that I guess this Willis guy was saying was because William Henry Fry is like, oh, like we should appreciate music that's more than just like the standard structure that it already is blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. This one comment that I thought was just, like, really sad. (laughs) So, basically, William Henry Fry is calling the Santa Claus Symphony a Fantasia, a one-movement piece that starts in a key, ends in the same key, and it's basically a united piece of music. Mm -hmm. Makes sense? And Mm -hmm. so he's trying to, like, bring out this whole dissertation about it. And then the one comment that Willis said afterwards was, My dear Fry, I admire your genius, but it is genius astray. You are wrong in your views of art. So I guess back at the time, a lot of music critics just weren't about his piece because it was too thematic, too childlike, Mm -hmm. and not a serious structure like Liszt Mm -hmm. or Beethoven. That was unfortunate. I know. And it's sad. I didn't know about him until I took an American music history course my mm-hmm. last year in undergrad. And you learn about the classical music side of the U.S. And it's it's there, but it's not as well known because we are so used to the German. The like, like, long-standing German-Austrian lineage yeah. of classical music. Yeah, like, I mean, at that time, it's like you're thinking about Schumann, Robert Schumann, you're thinking about Franz Liszt, you're thinking... I would argue that that's even the case now, because if you think about classical music, the big ones that you tend to think about, 75% of them tend to be from Germany or Austria or those Germanic countries. Yeah. No, but I think that's definitely the case even today. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it was just interesting to, like, read about him. Again, I have never seen this piece either programmed in an orchestra concert, except that one time hearing that Dr. Eanes did it with the Georgia Symphony that one time. Mm-hmm. But other than that, that's the only time I've ever seen or heard of that piece being played in public. I wonder if other people know about it or possibly played it before. I don't know. If you have, mm. let us know. Yeah, we definitely would love to hear everyone's input. So moving forward in history, we're going to Russia. Rimsky Korsakov was a Russian composer. Uh, He was born in 1844 to 1908. So he was obviously way before the Soviet Union, way before Russia as we know it, but still in Russia that is trying to be isolationist and is basically like 200 years behind everyone else because they're sort of really stuck in their like peasantry ways really leading up to that russian revolution time period so he was a member of the five which was a group of composers that essentially was trying to make a uniquely russian sound we kind of talked about how classical music was and still is dominated by composers who come from like Germany and Austria and such so these Russian composers were like hey we should have a Russian 
sound and have pride in Russian music and Russian culture and stuff. So Rumsey Korsakov was one of these guys. Mazorsky was another one. And then, uh, oh, God, it says Borden. Bordin. Bordin? Is it Bordin? Okay. I have. Mm, I thought I it was not Dean. Know. I don't remember. I don't know. Mazorsky, uh, Rimsky, Korsakov, Boridin, and... Bordin. Um, and I think the two others were less known. I can look it up. I remember when I went over this in music history class back in 2012. <laughs> and I just... Mm. Caesar Kuai? C-U-I. Alexander oh, Borden. Kui? Is it Kui? Yeah, I guess. Maybe. Alexander <laughs> Borden. Bordine. Millie. Oh, gosh. Balakarev. Modest Mazorsky and Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. All these people gathered together and they really just wanted to make a, a Russian style of classical music. And they were pretty yeah. good at it. Mazorsky and Rimsky-Korsakov are very well known in the orchestra world. Borden or Borodin. I guess now I'm second guessing myself. I think it might be Borden. I might have corrected you for no reason. <laughs> he wrote some really complicated string stuff. I practiced it. But I was just subbing in for a rehearsal, and it was the first rehearsal of the piece. I forgot what it's called, but Mm -hmm. there's a piccolo excerpt of it in our piccolo book for flutist. And I just remember being like, wow, this is so high. (laughs) Because I was playing the principal flute part, and when you play it on the piccolo part, it's just normal. It's in the middle register, but it sounds an octave higher. But on the mm-hmm. flute part, it's literally written in that octave. So you're playing high C's, high B's, and you're like, what am I doing? Why can't I just glow <laughs> on this? But I forgot what piece it was. So Rimsky Korsakov is really considered to be a master of orchestration in the terms of color and just writing parts, writing very good parts for many different instruments and being able to like clearly convey imagery via orchestra Scheherazade comes to mind mm-hmm. oh the piece I was talking about was also called Prince Igor yeah I've played that it's hard oh Polvetsian Dranzas that's what it's called Christmas Eve Suite is actually from an opera called Christmas Eve which I didn't know that I literally thought it was just a suite for Christmas Eve but it's for an opera that he actually wrote the music and the libretto for it's four mm. acts. It was composed in 1894 and 1895. It premiered December 10th of 1895 in St. Petersburg. It was based on a short story called Christmas Eve from, oh gosh, I am so sorry. Any of you are Russian or Ukrainian, I am just so sorry. It's from Nikolai Gogol's Evenings on a Farm near Dakanka, which is a town in Ukraine. The Sparknotes version of this opera is that there is a widow named Soloka who agrees to help the devil steal the moon. Hmm. She's a witch. Her son, Valkula, is a painter and he paints a lot of religious symbols in churches. Hmm. So he basically mocked the devil and the devil is heckin' mad. So the devil created a snowstorm to prevent him from seeing his lover, Oksana, who's like this real hot babe in the village. Like, every guy wants her. (laughs) (laughs) Soloka successfully steals the moon, and then Oksana says she'll only marry Valkula if he steals the Empress's slippers. Mm. And this kind of keeps being a, a reoccurring theme. So, while this is happening, the devil actually gets into her house, too, and someone knocks at the door. And I guess it's a pretty common theme, like, since she's such a hot babe in the village, that everyone goes to her house to ask for her hand in marriage. So, these few guys basically ask for her hand in marriage, and they leave because she's like, yeah, no, I'm not interested. Yeah, no, I'm not interested. And then her dad, who was lost in the snowstorm, comes back. And Valkula didn't recognize him. And it's basically like, you're trying to get my woman. So he attacks the dad. Hmm. And Awkward. Yeah, a little awkward to attack your potential yeah. future father-in-law. So yeah, <laughs> Oksana is like, how dare you attack my father? And essentially banishes him. 
and don't love you anymore yeah valkula leaves and he kind of makes vague marks of potentially killing himself and bids like his like big farewell thing and then he decides that the only way to win her is to take the slippers and throughout this oksana is constantly kind of berating him about getting the slippers even though he's not really there but she's constantly like snide remarks to like other people or like to the audience about it he should just move on (laughs) i think he deserves better so (laughs) vakula convinces the devil to bring him to saint petersburg and he does this by basically threatening him with a cross and the devil's like oh shit so the devil he jumps on the devil's back and the devil flies to saint petersburg and then he convinces the empress to give him a pair of boots And the reason why she gives him a pair of boots is because he asks in the form of singing during a minuet, and she just finds it so pleasing and amusing that she just gives him the shoes. (laughs) Dang. Which I guess is a thing. You went through all this trouble. Here are the shoes anyway. Here are the shoes. Keep in mind, this is a really big synopsis. It's a four-act opera, so it's a long, Oh my god! Yeah, it's a long thing. In Russian? long piece. In Mm -hmm. Russian? Mm Mm-hmm. (gasps) <gasps> in Russia, <gasps> Oksana <gasps> believes that Valkula killed himself because he ran away without really doing anything except this big farewell. But he comes back and basically presents her with the slippers, and then he asks her father for a blessing, and then he says yes, and then he proposes to her. Hmm. And that's kind of where it all ends. And then they live happily ever after, even though he kind of deserves better. <laughs> yeah, I think he deserves better. You're out of her league. I thought it was really interesting that there's actually a Russian slash Ukrainian tradition that mm. the devil is like allowed to come out at Christmas Eve. So that's where I this whole thing never comes expected from. It. Yeah, this is apparently fairly <laughs> Sounds like well a Halloween known. story, not a Christmas yeah. story. No, this is a Christmas thing. <laughs> okay. The suite itself was composed in 1904, so good 10 years later, and it basically condenses the music of the opera to around 20 minutes and kind of Mm. includes the pop hits of the opera. Yeah, and I remember playing it, and I liked it. I thought it sounded really cool. It was just different. Mm -hmm. I love playing Rimsky-Korsakov's music. Mm -hmm. Scheherazade is probably, like, the best piece ever, so. Yeah, I love Scheherazade. There's not really too much about the suite. If you do any research about this, it's all on the opera. Interesting. Well, that makes sense because that's the origin story of it. So, yeah. But it's interesting. He wrote a Christmas piece and an Easter piece. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. And I guess that brings us to our last piece, which did you find anything on it? I found zip on this one. Okay. We were going to cover Werner, or I guess it's Swiss. It might be Werner. Werner Werley's um or Christ- I would say if it's gonna be Werner, it's gonna be Werner Verlei. I think. So it's W E R N E R is his first name. His last name is W E H R L I. His piece called Christigbert. 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 Swiss for Christmas Day. It is a work yeah. for violin and flute. That we wanted to play together, <laughs> and we did want to present this for our episode, but I could not find anything that Patreon was not in... goals. <laughs> yeah. The only things I could find were primary sources that were in Swiss or German. Oh, I know. And I was like, once I started <clears throat> seeing like the German text, I saw some French too. I just sat there and I was like... I can't read any of this, and yeah. I really don't want to right now. But yeah, I didn't even see any recordings of this either. Mm-hmm. I did find one piece of this composer's on Naxos, and it wasn't this piece. It was something else, but there's a lot going on. There's a lot of texture going on. It's very early 20th century. So the only stuff I could tell about him is what I could gather on Wikipedia. He was Swiss. He was born in 1892 and died in 1944. And he apparently, according to Wikipedia, was considered one of the biggest Swiss composers between World War I and World War II. Hmm. Which 
I thought if he was a bigger composer, there'd be more stuff out there, but maybe between the world wars and being Swiss might've been overshadowed by everything else happening around. So maybe that's why his stuff is not as well known as it could be. Yeah. I did read something that he didn't study with, but he was like colleagues with Hindemith. Hmm. If I'm correct. Which when I listened to, I mean, if you think about it at that time, that would make sense since the early 20th century, we're on Hindemith's time. Right. So, and I was listening to some of the music too, and I was like, eh, it kind of sounds ish, like close to Hindemith in a way. But I mean, yeah. I think we should learn this piece. We <laughs> and should it is 12 movements it. long. It's 12 movements long, but it's not anything that's like, mm. wow, no. it's only seven pages. We've translated the titles before when. Catherine gave it to me I was like what does all this mean and it was all stuff about like the nativity scene and basically the story of people giving stuff to baby Jesus and stuff like very Christmas day type things so yeah I'm disappointed that I couldn't find more on this I guess that's more or less it as far as obscure classical Christmas music unless if there's anything else that you want to add I think this was really nice for a change of pace. It was definitely different. I haven't done anything like this in a really long time, like researching music and like trying to figure out like what's the origin of this. And it's like going back to music history again. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It was really interesting. It was different. I, I mean, I learned something new today. So. Oh yeah. So did yeah. I. Yeah, I learned some you interesting know. Russian traditions. Mm. I didn't know that early American music had so much tea to spill. I thought we spilled enough in the so tea party. So much drama but... over the pa- like on the paper too. So publicly, so scandalous. Oh my gosh, <laughs> people are crazy. Ooh. Anyway, well, we hope y'all like this. Let us know yeah. your opinions. You can DM us on Instagram. You can also talk to us on Facebook at Fiddle and Pipe Forum. Otherwise. We hope y'all have a good Christmas if you celebrate. I think Hanukkah's finishing up. Mm-hmm. So I hope y'all had good Hanukkahs. Kwanzaa happens, I think, after Christmas. And, yes. you know, if you don't celebrate any of those, well, I hope your New Year's good. Yeah. And have a nice, you know, time with your family. Just with some time Or by off. yourself. Yeah. De-stress, decompress, and, you know, hopefully, collectively, 2022 is a better year than 2021. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you all in January. So we are taking the next two weeks off. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we'll see all all y'alls in 2022. Bye. Bye. Bye, boy, boy. Uh, Stop.